Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So these neural net things are pretty cool, but I hear they have some limitations. They are all the rage right now, but they're, they're not artificial general intelligence yet, that's for sure. Womp womp. Well, we'll talk about how cool they are and also what some of those limitations are specifically in a moment. But first, you are listening to Linear Digressions. So before we get into it, quick note of thanks to Damien Taney. I think I'm saying your name right. Uh, this was a listener suggestion, and it's a pretty nice little overview paper that we'll be talking about today entitled Deep Nets, colon, What Have They Ever Done for Vision? The premise being that most uh, computer vision these days is done by deep neural nets, and there's kind of this operating assumption in some quarters that we've solved computer vision because we have deep neural nets or something. Uh, and right. this is a nice paper that kind of takes it down a peg. Oh, interesting. So this is almost a response to some of the hype that, that people might either be spreading or some of the assumptions that people might be making about the viability of neural nets for like image recognition or, or um, computer vision. Yeah, it's not explicitly trying to dispel any of the myths or anything like that. But it's I mean, I don't know. I I might have a particular perspective on this because I do this professionally, but you start to hear an awful lot about a lot of hype around AI and deep neural nets without necessarily always people understanding where some of the weak spots are. And that's oh, worth interesting. You know, remembering is that uh, they do have weak spots. And I think this paper does a nice job of laying those out, especially for the computer vision problem. Yeah, and that's that's always a really important thing to know is if you're going to utilize a tool or if you're going to implement uh, a technique or something like that, you not only want to know the ways that it can help you, but also the ways that um, the 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 things that you should watch out for or the ways that it may not be a hundred percent viable for the problem you're trying to solve. Totally. So a quick a quick overview here for anyone who is not super familiar with neural nets for computer vision and hasn't listened to one of our previous episodes where we've covered some of this. So neural net is a certain type of machine learning algorithm, and it's modeled loosely after uh, the connections that are between the neurons in your brain. That's why it's called a neural net. Although one of the things that this paper hastens to point out is that It is not uh, anywhere close to a totally faithful representation of a human brain. So that's maybe one of the origins of the misconceptions here. Right. So so with a cursory glance, you might say, oh, they're just modeling this exactly after the human brain and the way that neurons work. But once you dive in, you find that there are actually some uh, differences. Oh, I mean, there's a lot of differences. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some difference, a lot. <laughs> uh, and neural nets have been around for quite a while. They're they're not brand new technology by any means. However, there have been some technical advances, and in particular advances in the data sets that we are able to acquire and to process that have made deep neural nets. So those are neural nets that have many layers to them. There's a in sort of the architecture of the algorithm, there's this concept of layers and there's calculations that are done in one layer and that get past the outputs of those calculations get passed as inputs to the next layer. Right. And so when they're deep neural nets, it's usually referring to the fact that they have many layers, like four or five or six, and they can do much more complicated and 
maybe sophisticated calculations, but like I said, we're doing a little bit of debunking today. Right. So each of these layers in some sense does, uh, I, I hesitate to use the word simplification, but um, you have maybe a large number of inputs at the very beginning. And then as you go from layer to layer, typically those large number of inputs gets reduced into a smaller set of inputs to the next layer. So the outputs of each layer go into the go um, are the inputs for the next layer. And so you're saying that if you have, say, one or two or three layers, that's just neural nets. But once you get up to something like six or seven, then just colloquially we tend to refer to those as deep neural nets because they have more layers. Yeah, I don't know if there's really a an agreed-upon <laughs> rule of thumb for hmm. when when it's just a neural net versus when it's a deep neural net. But I don't know. It's just like whether you're When you lose to... count? No, I was going to say if you're trying to get VC funding, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so the deep neural nets, and then in particular, very often for computer vision, there's this special kind of layer called a convolutional layer that we don't have to go into here, but the point is that... Uh, especially deep convolutional neural nets are some of the state of the art for computer vision and doing stuff like recognizing objects and pictures and that sort of thing. And so the question is, at what point do we say computers can see or something sort of equivalent to that? Because if you're saying something like computer vision is advancing very quickly, then a a non-expert might interpret that as something that's comparable to human vision. And right. uh, so that's sort of what this paper goes through is some of the places where there are things that are still very easy for the human visual system to process, but that computers are, are very poor at. So like, what's a, what's an example of something like that? Well, glad you asked. <laughs> uh, Cause there are a lot of examples. So, so say there's a lot of training images that you have and it's a, they're images of a couch, and they're taken from eye height, so maybe you know five feet, five six feet off the ground, and uh, it's looking Probably straight onto the straight couch. On. Yeah, yeah, the straight kind, on the kind couch. of the, the type of thing you would see on Craigslist. Exactly. You know, the first picture you would see, not like the second or third where they're trying to show you from the different angles and you get it, you know, you trying get the good side. the rip in the side. and Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So one of the things that's surprising is that you or I would have no problem at all, say, looking at all these different pictures of a couch and saying, yeah, those are all a couch. Moreover, they're probably the same couch. Yeah. Uh, like we're very good at understanding that, that there's a you know, kind of this solid object here and someone was rotating around it and viewing it from different angles. But that's the kind of thing that actually it's, it's quite striking how much the performance of the neural nets can drop off as you, as you rotate or as you change the perspective on the object. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I guess like when I look at a couch, what I, I, I guess what I do in my head is I imagine a three-dimensional object I don't just look at this this flat thing and say that is a couch. I, I imagine the object, the couch itself. I have no trouble uh, like closing my eyes, looking at looking at a picture of a couch, closing my eyes, and then imagining what the backside of the couch might look like. But 
a neural net is not going to be doing that. If it's trained on all of these images of the front of couches, it's not going to be able to do a very good job of understanding what that three-dimensionally three looks like or what it might look like from the side or from the back. Does that feel accurate, like in the, in the way that, that these neural nets are, are trained and how they end up uh, kind of being built? Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. As you were talking about it, I was thinking back to an, an earlier episode that we did about capsule networks, which are... Yeah, I remember. Yeah. They, so... they kind of try to infer what things look like a little bit differently. Yeah. So, I mean, still neural networks that are being used for computer vision, but there's a different architecture to the way capsule networks work. These are very new and it's it's not clear that exactly how good they are, but it seems like they have some interesting advantages. But they're particularly built with the idea that they should be flexible to changes in pose. So that's when you're sort of rotating the object or you're changing its orientation or your height relative to the object, those kinds of things. And so anyway, the, the takeaway that I, I take from the fact that capsule networks have to exist is that even though we've been working on computer vision with neural nets for, you know, especially with large amounts of data for years now, that it's such a hard problem to crack that some of the smartest people in the field went back to the drawing board and said, maybe mm. let's just declare bankruptcy and see if we can, <laughs> if we start over again with some other kind of yeah. architecture. But Flip the table. Yeah. But one of the things that as I was reading this paper was, was standing out to me was, I mean, they opened the paper by talking about the things where neural nets are pretty good. And they're like, yeah, if you have lots and lots of training data and it's showing similar objects from similar angles and in similar similar poses and all those kinds of things, then it is pretty good. Uh, there are certain types of problems where computer the deep neural nets do quite well. Now, where it starts to break down is where you're doing things like you're rotating around the object. They gave a good example of transposing objects in a picture that don't make sense to each other. So they had a picture of a monkey and then it's holding a bicycle. Like you just Photoshop a bicycle over top of it. But then the computer doesn't have any examples of a monkey and a bicycle in the same picture. Yeah. And so it'll start misclassifying things. But we as humans are we're like, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's a monkey and a bicycle. I don't have any, I don't have any struggles with that. Yeah. And like our, our biggest struggle with that is why? Yeah. But then you're like, well, <laughs> you know, somebody just photoshopped a bicycle on top of a monkey like I, yeah I it's it's the internet it's not that big of a struggle yeah or you, that there are examples where when you change the backgrounds of certain images that it becomes a lot harder for the computers to to recognize the objects in in those images and anyway the thing that all of these things together suggest to me is that deep neural nets are it kind of feels like they're pretty good at memorizing stuff, but I'm not sure that they've really learned anything in the oh, way that we, we think about people memorizing or learning things. I'm yeah. I'm anthropomorphizing here. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. But... I was gonna say. So yeah, that that's a that's an interesting way of, of putting it. I'd never thought of it that way, but but yeah, the idea of almost memorizing as opposed to comprehending is an interesting way of putting it. It's also interesting that what we define, and this is this is not really directly to do with the topic, but just a thing that came up for me. It's interesting that the way that we classify, the, the way that we define the verb to see, of course, it would be uh, centered around the way that we process images and the way that we process visual input. 
and the way that we understand it, classify it in our own heads, uh, and also the things that we can can do about it. Uh, sorry, do with it. And uh, I imagine that if, well, I was going to say if the machines had created humans, then you know they they would probably be measuring us against whatever the things that they're good at. But that's that's sci-fi. Yes, that would be a very this would that's be a, a Will Smith podcast. Movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, what would that podcast be like? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, would we be being forced to do the podcast by the robots, or would it just be our analogs, but robots? These are questions I don't have the answer to. <laughs> you can you can edit this out if you want this. <laughs> All right. So some other things where Back humans are, are are quite good. Yeah. So some other things where humans are quite good, but the neural nets are spotty, let's say, uh, is around stuff like transfer learning and zero shot learning and sort of semi-supervised learning. So, so I, mm-hmm. I, I want to take a stab at this. I don't remember, I don't know what transfer learning is, but I, I remember zero shot learning is when you haven't seen any examples of something before and you're, and you're shown just a first single example and you have to kind of make sense of it. Is, is that, Yeah, you nailed it. That's it. Is that the is that the monkey holding the bicycle? Sure. Yeah. All right. Um, So that's I'm really proud. Yeah, yeah. And so transfer learning, you know, transfer learning, I think is pretty pretty closely related, although it's not literally the same thing. Transfer learning is the idea that you train on one type of data and then explicitly try to extrapolate it to some other use case. Oh, okay. So you train on like. Okay, maybe this won't work, but like you train on dogs and humans and then you try to understand monkeys? Uh, kind of, yeah. So one of the good examples here is that you might have, imagine you have two different data sets and you're, okay. you want to do image recognition on both of them. And so one of them has lots and lots of examples and one of them has only a few examples. And they're, oh. and they're different data sets and so... It's not right. like you could just combine them together, but sometimes what you'll do is you'll you'll pre-train the the network on the bigger data set, and then you'll have the smaller data set just make tweaks to the values in the neural net, that kind of thing. So is that so? Maybe I'll take a different stab at it. This is like you're trying to classify monkeys, and you have a whole bunch of uh, of low to medium resolution images that are monkeys, and then you've got some high resolution images that you're trying to classify but you don't have any high resolution test examples. And then you, you kind of try to train on the low to medium res and then transfer learning hopefully gets you uh, a good shot at classifying the high res ones. One of the examples they give in the paper that we'll just let the experts be yes, experts. Yes, I should we'll just stop talking. <laughs> um, so imagine that you have data sets of faces and uh-huh. one of them is used for facial recognition. And then sometimes a, another task that you might have is facial expression. Is this person smiling or are they frightened or, you know, making some kind of, you know, there's some kind of emotional label that's attached to the expression on the face. Um, so the idea might be that you pre-train a network on the facial recognition task, and then it learns the general features of a face and it has kind of that idea in its head, again, to anthropomorphize irresponsibly. Um, And then you use that pre-trained network on maybe a smaller data set that's zeroing in on the expressions as 
aspect of it. And that'll do better than if you just were to straight train from the expressions by themselves. I see. Yeah. And then you said a third one, and I don't, I don't recall what that one was called. Third one what? Trans Transfer zero oh, shot. Oh, uh, yeah. The lightly supervised learning. Oh, and, okay. Yeah. Um, and so this is starting to relax how good the labels are on the data set that you have. Uh, so a good example in computer vision is in the soup, in the simplest computer vision example, say you're trying to do some kind of image recognition, the label that you can get will have a, the location of the object as well as the, the name of the object. But in a more loosely labeled data set, you might just get the name of the object, but it won't tell you where in the image the object is. So that's a slightly more challenging case for the computer to, to figure out. Mm -hmm. Now, one other thing, I was a little bit thinking about this when you were talking about, you know, the computers versus the humans and what does it mean for a human to see and what are the rules of vision a little bit. This is one of the last points of this paper that I actually think is pretty interesting this is a, a field of computational neuroscience that we haven't tiptoed into that much on this podcast, but it's the idea of grammars. And this comes up in both computational linguistics and it can come up in, in visual tasks as well. Um, but the rough idea of a grammar, you know what grammar is in kind of the, you know, grammar was a thing you had to study in school, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So when I say grammar, I mean it in a similar way, but not exactly the same way. Have you ever heard of something like the grammar of graphics? The grant? No, I have not. Okay. That's another example if anyone's familiar with that, but it's the idea that there's certain rules for if you're doing something like data visualization for mm, how you layer the different elements on top of each other. So much like you use periods in this way and commas in this way with grammar in a language, um, or you use semicolons in this way in a programming language, the grammar, you, you have like a visual grammar where you say you don't use yellow and orange next to each other in a chart or something like that. It's a little bit, it's a little bit deeper and more profound than that. I mean, I think yeah. you're, you're gesturing in the right direction. But I'll take the linguistics example because it's a little bit more well-developed. So this idea goes back a couple of decades, and I'm I'm going to try to do it justice, but I will almost certainly get aspects of this wrong. Um, but there was a linguist, the, the most famous linguist to work on grammars was a guy named Noam Chomsky. And what he was trying to explore was whether there was something called a universal grammar, which is the idea that language has a genetic component because he was noticing that there are certain patterns in the language that we all speak. And there's moreover certain, there's certain mistakes that you or I might make in grammar and that everyone does, but there's certain mistakes that we never make. So I might say it's a grammatically not a great sentence for me to say something like me and my dog went outside should be like my dog and I went outside. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is sentences like, well, here's, here's a silly one, but you'll hear it immediately. I opened the big red barn. That sounds fine, right? I opened the door to the big red barn. You would never say, I opened the door to the red big barn. Mm, right? Yeah, so, and I don't know why. Right? And so it's really big easy to come up with examples of 
places where we would just, there's just patterns in the way that we speak that we completely take for granted and where we would never, we would never change things around, but not for, not for reasons that we could really articulate why. I certainly can't articulate why, because I was not aware of this until you brought it up. And now it's kind of bothering me. I think it's so interesting. I've, I love reading about, I think this stuff is so, this is, this stuff is so cool. Anyway, yeah, that was a distraction. The point is, what does this have to do with computer vision? Well, there's analogs for the types of patterns that you can have in images. And so let's take oh. the example. Yeah. So let's take the example of you're trying to do image recognition on just simple Roman characters. So you're looking at, you're looking at a picture and you're trying to figure out what letter is in the picture. So humans are very, very robust to things like you could have, you could have the character be italicized. It could have a weird font. It could be serif or sans serif. It could have pieces missing out of it. As long as those pieces aren't too numerous or arranged just so that it breaks up the flow of the of the letter like imagine all of the things that happen in captchas where they yeah i was gonna say yeah take little pieces out of a word or out of a, a number but you still can recognize it so those are those are ideas of kind of a grammar that we have ideas about what what the rules are for how you can manipulate say the image of a a roman character and still recognize it as the letter A or the letter B, we have no problem with, say, the letter A that's been shaded in kind of weird. But you could also imagine that if you took all the pieces of the letter A, you know, the the one diagonal and the other diagonal and the crossbar, and you were to totally rearrange them, like that would break the rules for you. You would not be able to recognize that as the letter A. So that's a little bit what I mean by uh, the grammar that computers, for computers, those two things might be equally challenging but to humans one of them is not really a problem at all that's fascinating yeah that 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 really makes me um it 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 makes me aware of the assumptions that i make when i imagine the way that a computer would solve a problem like this i just in intrinsically or implicitly assume that the the computer reasons or or feels about this the same way I do. But of course, that's nonsense. I mean, it, it is nonsense, but it's it's understandable nonsense, right? Because that's the way your yeah. brain works. How else would you right. think about it? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's kind of funny to take a step back and realize that there are these things that we take for granted because they're so natural for us, right? That's why that's why Chomsky yeah. started to get interested in this stuff is he was like, maybe this is genetic. Maybe this isn't even, uh, this isn't a thing that we learn from each other. There's a, there's a gene that we have for language. Um, oh, that's crazy. Right. So that thing is called a grammar in this context, or that's what we call it. Yeah. So when Chomsky is talking about the idea that language might have a genetic component, he called it the universal grammar, but it was the idea that there's, there are certain patterns in the way we speak to each other. And perhaps there are certain patterns in the types of images that we can recognize Uh that are, it's more than just something that we've maybe learned from our surroundings, but there's something that we've evolved to be to that. Our brain is structured in a way that reproduces certain types of patterns. I'm not, I'm almost certainly not getting that totally perfectly correct, but yeah, it's the, it's the general idea that 
there are certain types of perturbations that do not affect our ability to do things like recognize objects or communicate with each other. So while we're talking about things that neural nets are not great at, I mean, one thing that came up for me is thinking about some of the previous episodes we've done on adversarial neural nets, which are neural nets that are trying to create examples that other neural nets cannot recognize, even though they may be very, very similar to the to the versions that the neural net can recognize. So like, uh, I guess the, the example that always comes into my head is you have a stop sign and you put some sort of a pattern over the stop sign, like a really light pattern. And humans still see it as a normal stop sign, but self-driving cars now all of a sudden don't recognize it as a stop sign. And so they, they run the stop sign. Um, do, do those adversarial examples kind of count, I guess, in this context of things that neural nets are bad at? Or do they not exactly count because you have to kind of go out of your way to try and defeat the neural nets? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think they count in the sense that it's a place where the neural nets don't line up with our idea of human vision because a human wouldn't be fooled by that. But it's an interesting point how many, you know, usually the way that we make these adversarial images is not by taking a real life object and putting a thing over top of it. It's we'll take an image that's already been recorded and start to manipulate it pixel by pixel until the neural net gets it wrong. And so what you might take away from that is that those adversarial images actually have to be very carefully constructed. And of all the semi-infinite numbers of adversarial images that you could generate, there's only a very, very small subset of them that actually fool the neural net. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you're saying, hey, this neural net has a weakness, which is this carefully constructed weakness that we went out of our way to create. A little and that, bit, yeah. that would be kind of the case for any, any te- uh, I guess, any technology, really. Yeah, I mean, who among us doesn't have weak spots, right? Um, yeah, I mean, even Hercules had, had that heel. That was Achilles, but yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I'm an idiot. I was going to say even Hercules <laughs> had the Achilles heel. Uh, okay, <laughs> let's just leave that in because I I need to be called out for that. I was going to say, a... I think, yeah, I think we've done all we need to do here. That was actually the last That's... thing we wanted to talk about. Let's, that is let's call it a day. embarrassing. All right, I started nice and weak with no pun, and I ended strong by making a fool of myself. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.